I'm Marshall Price. I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Academy. Uh, welcome to the review panel. Um, it's wonderful to see so many new faces in the crowd. And um, for those of you who don't know, this is an ongoing event that we have uh, once a month. Um, and there will be one final review panel uh, to end the season on Friday, May 22nd. And it's a special review panel. And uh, our moderator, David Cohen, has invited four young artists to join him, uh, four young critics, excuse me, to join him to review uh, Younger Than Jesus, the generational, the exhibition at the New Museum. And the title of the review panel is Younger Than Pontius Pilate. Uh, there are flyers, so please take one home so you remember to come. Um, before I introduce the moderator, I would just like to thank uh, the Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts for being so kind as to fund this ongoing program. Our moderator this evening, who will then introduce the critics, is David Cohen. He is the editor of artcritical.com and the director of the gallery at the New York Studio School. So please welcome David Cohen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marshall and, and Christine Williams and everyone here at the National Academy who makes, uh, makes all this possible. And thanks in advance to my, uh, the editorial assistant at artcritical.com, Gabby Grodin, who's prepared the PowerPoint display and researched it, and to Graham White, our recording engineer. Uh, Graham records these so that we can hear the review panel and the rest of the world can hear the review panel um, at artcritical.com slash review panel where there's an extensive archive. I think we're on number 26, aren't we? Or 20, 28, 29. Any advance on 29? No. Okay. Uh, we're in we're well established with our format and our series here, but um, uh, tell me if this is your first uh, appearance as an audience member of the review panel. Yes, uh, a few of you, quite a few of you. So let me just run through the format so you know what we're doing. We've had a chance, uh, the audience has had a chance to go and see, and hopefully the panel has had a chance to go and see, uh, four exhibitions which we're going to review. Uh, Jenny Holzer at the Whitney, Tasta Dean, at uh, Marion Goodman, Stephen Prina at uh, Friedrich Pretzel, and uh, uh, what's his name? Saw, Peter Saw at uh, David Nolan Gallery. Um, and th what we do is we have a quick little PowerPoint display to remind ourselves of those images that we've been looking at. And then we have a discussion on the panel and at a certain point, we take a little break so that the audience can let off steam and give some of their responses and perhaps probe the panel with questions that the panel has not of its own accord addressed. Then we go back and finish off the program. And then you all go off into this beautiful spring evening, your head reeling with the critical discourse that has filled it in this pleasure-filled hour here at the National Academy. And let me welcome my panel this evening uh, from the far left, uh, my far left, Alexi Worth. Alexi is an artist whose 
work is shown at DC Moore Gallery. Uh, he is uh, a visiting critic at uh, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, somewhat overly, over-modestly and improbably, he tells me that he's semi-retired as an art critic, but in fact is a very distinguished art writer. Uh, we still see him on occasion writing feature-length articles in the style section of the New York Times. He has been a contributor to Art Forum and The New Yorker magazine, and we no doubt will see him elsewhere too. Deborah Garwood is also an artist. She, in fact, has a solo exhibition coming up at the Antonio Perez Foundation in, uh, in uh, Quenea in Spain. Is that how you pronounce it? Cuenca. Cuenca. That sounds better. Cuenca in Spain. And she is uh, also a, besides, a, a, a monograph on her work is appearing uh, next month from Hunter and Company. Uh, she um, primarily works in photo-based media. Uh, she sits on the editorial board of Master Drawing, which is uh, put together at the Morgan Library Museum. Uh, she is, of course, a contributing editor at artcritical.com, her principal pride and joy, but also sits on the editorial board of PAJ, the Journal of Performance and the Performance Performing? Journal of Performance and Art. Journal of Performance and Art. Excellent. Thank you. And Blake Gopnik, joining us from the federal capital, is chief art critic of the Washington Post. Uh, and he is also uh, commencing his research on a history of pubic hair. Apparently, he's in the stage of preliminary research. And that's <laughs> probably the place we all, would all want to be. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome, welcome my panel. It's hard to think of an artist who, who better fits the term critical decor. Uh, Deborah, did you find yourself doing a lot of reading in the Jenny Holzer show, or did you let the words dissipate, and primarily would you say you had a sensual experience there? Mm, I'd have to say I had a, a sensual experience. Um, I enjoyed the lights and color and the way the color uh, turned the whole room into an environment, as uh, the Whitney's little brochure pointed out. Um, I'm familiar with Jenny Halter's work. I was a guard at DIA when her exhibition was there, the Laments series, and that was similar LED signs and um, engraved benches. And um, I, one thing I observed there, which I thought was interesting, is the way people linger, the way people linger in the space. They just sort of hang out, you know, they don't run through. And that was very much a feature of um, the exhibition at DIA. So it was interesting to see that that, somehow her work evokes that response in the viewer. Still, it wasn't sort of a moment in 1990 or whenever it was. It seems to still happen now. She's able to evoke that, an atmosphere that makes people sort of stop and think. They're probably thinking about what the work means. I mean, it's. Um, heavy stuff, but you know, it has that effect, so I, I thought I observed that. Yes. Uh, Blake, lots of lights and heavy stuff, uh, quite a word and uh, words and, and, and uh, sensory sensations. Um, uh, uh, 
I hate sensory so, sensations. Give yes. me other kinds of sensations. Yeah, so we hate tautologies as well. So, uh, but they, they, do it, they do emerge when one ad-libs, ad so I hope you'll forgive it. But um, um, where do you stand with the... A lot of very high technology there, isn't there? It's, it's a pretty, pretty well-crafted uh, installations and clever things happening. Um, did you find yourself um, marveling at, impressed by the, the technology, the finesse of, of these works? Or was that a detraction in any way? And where did you stand with that? Um, I feel like pulling a Washington trick and saying, well, interesting you should ask that, and then say exactly what I planned to say before you ever asked a question. Um, but I'll actually answer your question, um, if I can think of anything interesting to say about it. Um, no, I think in this day and age, that particular technology isn't particularly impressive. I mean, it's the technology of standard signage. I think it's a red herring to see it as particularly technological work. In fact. In a sense, what's interesting about it is how banal the technology is. And I think that's part of the point of the work, is that the technology is simply the technology, the standard technology of signage of the commercial world. Hmm. So what were you originally going to tell me before I uh, asked you that question then? Um, I guess what interests me is actually the idea that, there's, that things are deep in this, that it's full of words and meaning. Um, I think that's a kind of, it, funny, that's standard praise and also standard criticism of Holzer, it seems to me. That is, she's either praised as being um, oracular and profound or criticized for being a kind of sloganeer. Mm -hmm. But what interested me is that it's actually very hard to read the words in her, in her work. Um, it would take a great deal of work to actually extract profound meaning from it. What's impressive mm -hmm. is, in fact, how the words are there, but they're actually, A, often uh, fairly opaque, and more often than not, relatively in in illegible. That is, the mm -hmm. technology actually works against them. And I suddenly realized that with the, the paintings as well, with all the work based on the CIA, there's a constant erasure of meaning in mm. her work. Rather than simple slogans that you can read, it seems to me that they're very much about failures of meaning. Yeah. Alexei, will you say almost that the, the textual element in Holtz is a bit like following the um, libretto of an opera, which is in a, a language you're not familiar with? Uh, do, you, do you feel that she is primarily wanting to get across certain ideas and that those ideas are textual? Or do you think that the, uh, the, the, the formal, sen the sensation, the form, the mood uh, is, is uh, primary and that in a way the words are being knowingly subverted or submerged? I certainly don't think they're being subverted. And I think, uh, to me, the whole question is mood. The viewpoint is what's clear. And you, whether you stay for a while and, and read more of the words or whether you glancingly pick up a few, you know where you are. And it seems to me that that's the huge problem with her work, that the ceiling is just super low. We know the point of view. We, it, there's a kind of shrewd uh, reluctance to over-hector us in much of the work. It's a little bit o opaque or a little bit coy. And I think that's probably smart because she knows that she doesn't want to just be doing kind of op-ed work, but it's still op-ed. It's still, it seems to me that um, I couldn't find a place to be interested in that work at all, genuinely. The opening piece that you see when you come out of the elevators has a kind of physical beauty. And there I agree with you. And, and, um, and that's the place where I thought I could get into some sort of um, formal uh, riff about what, what her work does. But it seems to me that she's a sort of uh, terrific successor CEO to the earlier generations of minimalists and people using light um, without any, any real addition. Um, I, I can't see, 
I, I can like her in a certain way as a person, as an artist who seems conscientious. Um, I feel like the, all the Iraq work is just a total mistake. I think that the, there the viewpoint is so over-familiar, it's mm. not really worth entering the room. Mm. But in, in the, where, the, where, where there's a kind of sculptural presence, I, I, I could get, I see flickers of interest, but I don't see anything like a possibility of any greatness anywhere mm. in that show. Deborah, would Tell you, us what you really you, think, though, Alexi. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah, would you, would you come to the defense of the, the juxtaposition of the, in many senses, very gray works, the Iraq CIA torture works, and the, um, uh, the sensual, uh, uh, the lightness in, in every sense of the, the colored lights, the poetic, opaque meanings of her... Um, uh, kinetic pieces. It seemed to me there's uh, two very different kinds of art that don't speak to each other being juxtaposed there. Well, David, we haven't heard from you yet what you thought about the show, but you pretty much, I'm with you on that point. Um, I was kind of surprised to see the oil paintings on canvas with the diagrammatic thing, um, the diagrammatic images, mm. and, <clears throat> and I was also surprised that they were oil on canvas. It seemed like a very precious way to render that sort of material. And I thought it was incongruous with the um, LED sign. Especially when the same material actually has been presented uh, in a way much more effectively during the Bush administration as projections on buildings, such as uh, NYU buildings. It seemed to me almost sad, almost a compromise of what had been quite a, a bold gesture, although, you know, avant-garde artists in New York, how bold is it to, to pose torture in Guantanamo Bay? But still, um, you know, it, it had a bit more validity and, and punch to it when it was A, during the Bush administration, and B, out there on, a, on the Bobst library being projected. It seemed, seemed sadly precious to now become um, oil on canvas in the Whitney Museum. Blake? Um, it seems to me, though, by, by saying that, you're sort of looking through the actual content of those works. That is, there are, there are documents there, mm. and it seems that we have to take that seriously. Blowing them up on canvas just makes them, just as a way of presenting them, in a sense. And it seems to me that those documents deserve interpretation. And one yeah, of the interesting things about those documents is, and there are all sorts of interesting things about the documents and the contents of those documents, and by blowing them up on the wall, blowing them up on canvas, Holzer lets us actually have access to them. And they're weird, weird documents, and that's important, it seems to me. I mean, not just... Hate, hateful documents, which they are, but there's all sorts of strange things that go on. I mean, you know, fingerprinting or hand-printing the edges of the hands of the prisoners seems like an interesting and weird thing. And just that presentational ability, just showing us weird stuff in the world, seems a perfectly worthwhile and, and long-standing artistic goal. Yeah, but it does also pinpoint this, this tension uh, between... The, the didactic and the um, more poetic, which is um, often there in her work. Sometimes I feel I'm being clobbered over the head by politically correct sentiments with uh, uh, the truisms that uh, are, are about consumerism and a lack of meaning in our culture. And other times, it's almost like, not of the same caliber, but Emily Dickinson-like kind of uh, uh, way-outness to, to some of the... Um, the poetry of what she presents. Um, so it's, it is disconcerting when the same person is using language poetically and politically, um, um, sort of oscillating from one to the other. Um, you know, that could be a, a useful subversion, but I think with her it's just a confusion. 
Well, to go back to the paintings for a moment and the brochure that the Whitney uh, produced, um, <clears throat> there was a note there that for further reference, go to this website, government website, and look at the documents, look at her source material for yourself. So there was a link to that and a link to um, the ACLU. So, in fact, I went there, and I have to say that she certainly brought my attention to those documents. It's a it's declassified material. Anyone can have a look at it. So, um, although I you know I questioned the f the format of the paintings, I think the point of bringing our awareness to these declassified websites that was a learning experience for me. And you know, in fact, the little the blocky little uh, diagrams are quite strange and kind of cartoony, and that's really what the military seems to use to deploy troops. But aren't there, so. coming back to Blake's notion that you know she's providing, uh, performing a service by bringing our attention to it and showing us these weird things in the world. Uh, there are, as the brochure says, they're on the web. Uh, they, you, can, you can see them in, in various forms. A, there's no shortage of places where you can go to see these um, objects, and B, there's a great shortage of space in places like the Whitney Museum of Art to showcase great art. So um, isn't it a thoroughly inefficient way of drawing our attention to declassified government documents to take up the wall, one floor of the Whitney Museum doing so? But there's a com um, drawing attention to things as art is obviously completely different than drawing attention to them as documents floating on the web. Well, which it sounded like you were t uh, suggesting that her, uh, her uh, contribution was the latter. Uh, no, I think that there's a special thing which is pointing a finger within art, that is using art to show things in the world, is different than just showing things in the world. It has a different valence, because art has a different valence in the society. It gets you to look at things in a very particular way, which is different than just using them. It, that is, for instance, what I mentioned earlier, the failure of those documents is literally writ large in her paintings, which makes it very different than just seeing it on a computer screen. That is, you realize the, ridiculous of the ridiculousness of the whole project in a different way once they're turned into art. It gives it, among other things, a kind of seriousness. It pulls it out of the standard flow of information in the world and says, hey, look at this with a different kind of eye. That seems to me a perfectly valid thing for But for it could also do. be doing the opposite from making it seem more serious by making it art. It becomes uh, decoration, and, um, uh, and especially, especially when it's so essentially banal in its um, uh, lack of transformation into its medium. Did you, Alexi, find that there was any transformation taking I, place? I wish there would. I'm interested in Blake's claim, and I, I can't even, if you could flesh it out, that would be great. Because Just, these documents say things damn. like, I personally killed a child. That was one of the more moving ones, this soldier writing about a child who pointed a gun at him, so it's a little bit more complicated than the opening sentence. But still, of course, you know, these things, all, most of them are well chosen and dramatic and urgent. There's Bush's letter uh, saying specifically the Geneva Conventions don't apply. There's the father whose son has been court-martialed pleading with the general to look into the case. Each of these things, the, the, the Iraqi high school teenager saying um, that he forgives the guy who beat him up and broke his jaw, each of them extraordinarily moving. But for me, my response wasn't any different in this context than it was some of them I'd seen before, many of them I hadn't. My response felt identical. How was how yours different? Um, actually, I think what was interesting for me was um, not that they were moving, but that in a funny sense they become unmoving. And that seemed to me more interesting than the standard response to these things. It's a sort of sentimental response, so isn't it sad? 
there seemed to me, among other things, the sheer number of documents and the variety of kinds of documents sort of turned them all into a kind of generalized uh, history of the Iraq War, where there's a kind of ridiculousness, a kind of failure, a real failure of meaning in all sorts of different levels. A failure of meaning. In other words, they're no longer, uh, you no longer felt chagrined and upset. Um, yeah, that, that, that those kind of reactions, in fact, don't work to, take, to, to deal with that kind of material. That somehow or other, there's something strange about um, the, the sheer quantity of information that comes from an event like the Iraq War. Um, that there is no making sense of it. That, in fact, the sentimental stuff doesn't work and the, the simple documents don't work either. So, in other words, they become as uh, like truisms, which, is, which has been her preoccupation for her whole career. Now, why? Let's try to get to Holzer. Why is she? Um, what's so important about truisms? Why is she so excited by them? Why, why, why is she making a whole career out of um, uh, silliness, basically? I mean, um, no, 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 no. I think that's totally missing the point. I think that she believes in these things, and I think that I think that you're wrong. That each of those documents was chosen because it was moving, not because the totality of them uh, begins to create some. Uh, kind of slippage or denial of meaning or something. I think they were chosen. Each of them is moving in a quite different way. Each of them shows a different viewpoint from the American soldier to the parent to the Iraqi child to the, um, to the government bureaucrats to the top of the bureaucracy. It seems to me that they were chosen to move us and to move us in specifically political ways and that there was a decision made to uh, sort of drop the imperatives of art as art and say, I'm, I'm talking politically here. And then the truisms are the same thing. Abuses of power comes as no surprise in the lead up to the Reagan years and stuff. I think that was just simply earnestly meant. Except that it's so, it fails so dismally that, I mean, it's possible that she's simply a terrible artist. But it seems to me more interesting to imagine that there's actually sort of something interesting about the truisms having so little content. I mean, to say the abuse of power is, what's the proper phrase? Comes as no surprise. Comes as no surprise is obviously true and is, in fact, a truism. Um, but it was kind of tend fun, to be plastered dull. all over the city, you know, in the phone booth and stuff. When you know, it, there was a kind of nice local, unexpected little pop-up feeling to well, it. Well, let's look at this another way then, uh, Deborah. We've got an artist here who's bringing together two very different cultural forces. One is a kind of Karl Kraus-like uh, deconstruction of language and forcing us to think about the consequences of. Uh, 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 cliched language and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, there's a kind of formal thing, Dan Flavin, uh, these saturated fields of uh, fluorescent light. Um, do these work together? Do these need to be together? Do we, uh, do, is, there a, is there a synthesis of, this, um, of these two? Are they even a dialectic? What, why, why bring those two together? Oh, I think she brought them together beautifully, uh, first with the handbills in the 1980s and then with the um, uh, the LED works a bit later on. It was a stunning combination. No, but that, that's... Yes, it, okay. Is that what you were saying? Well, no, the, I, the I specifically mentioned uh, uh, the, the, the minimalism of... the formal, sensual minimalism of the light work and the um, p conceptual uh, agenda of the language work. Do they belong together? Do they work together? Well, I think what was so amazing about um, seeing it for the first time is that those diode signs were not terribly common. I mean, they were more or less ubiquitous, but they weren't old. So it was kind of, a, back then it did feel like it's sort of a recent technology. And of course, we had Dan Flavin's um, use of light and other artists using light before, but this was moving. 
You know, it was literally, you know, sparkling and moving along and, yeah. and conveying a message. So to have that message be in this public, you know, it's very public industrial format, uh, especially considering what the messages said. You know, I always thought they were like bizarre. It was like a subconscious voice. You know, how did she even think of these things? I mean, they were they were really bizarre, and they were readable at the Dia installation. You know, for a while they were entirely readable. Very strange. There was some. The political content wasn't so overt, but um, you couldn't mistake in this indirect, strange way that she was using language and technology that the body and the public sphere were sort of in a collision, like language in the public space, the personal and the private, these things were sort of being turned inside out. And I think that's what just made the work so exciting at first. And for somebody who's so centrally concerned with power, uh, as she is in her work, um, do we have a, an attitude towards the fact that a considerable amount of her power comes from a rather uh, expensive and sophisticated deployment of forces. I mean, I'm thinking of the Venice Biennale Pavilion some years ago. There was a heck of a lot of firepower in that. A lot of that must have been one of the most expensive um, uh, American pavilions of the, the biennial ever. And uh, just just in terms of its uh, technology, however low technology you might say it is, Blake. Um, is there some? Is there like a, a little frisson of hypocrisy in in somebody who's clearly a, a woman of the left, deconstructing power, and yet she needs a, a floor of the Whitney and, and a quite a big budget to do it. Um, uh, no, it's the panel that's discussing it, thanks. But you, well, don't say it. Um, 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 now I've lost my train of thought. I'm just going to go back to something else once again. Um, the notion that these things are formally um, beautiful surprises me. It seems to me that they they criticize, it's not a great word, that they're anti-Flavin in a sense, that they, that they belittle the whole Flavin project. Flavin has, at his best, a kind of grand seriousness as a formalist, and it seems to me that mm. these are poking fun at that, mm. that these are just signs. They're not particularly good as Flavins, I and mean, they have none of the, the weight of a good Flavin. They seem to me <clears> to be doing, in a funny sense, the same thing to Flavin as they're doing to, to language. I mean, this yeah, is... Yeah, but Flavin's hardly a target like language in Iraq, is he? Oh, I think in the... Well, I imagine in the 70s, they, he certainly was. That is, the grand the claims 70s, of formalism. In the 70s, she wasn't doing uh, this, so... It is... The, the grand claims of formalism seem like a pretty good target to me for an artist to go after, and I, that... I, I think you're back creating then. a whole new artist, and I like very much the artist you're creating, and I think that That's artist's the ultimate name critics. is kind of Joseph Kasuth or Lawrence Wiener or something along, maybe, maybe another artist to sort of Joseph Wiener or Lawrence Kasuth, <laughs> something like that. And I, I urge you to keep on creating this artist, but Jenny Holzer's not that... that guy, gal, whatever. It seems to me that you're right, though, that they're not beautiful, exactly, that's not quite the right word, but they're spectacular. And it seems to me one of the, one of the few In things... In an interest uninteresting way, wouldn't you say? Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. Un uh, uninteresting, but are they interestingly uninteresting? That's the, that's the point. I, I think they're interestingly, interestingly uninteresting, is what I would say. That's one beyond me, and I lost it. So, but I'm to blame for it, so, I mean... You know, minimalism itself is interestingly uninteresting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's knowingly ABC, primary structures, dumb math, but it's interesting and it's historically relevant and, you know, etc. cetera. But um, uh, her, her, her truisms, I think, are somewhere else. My experience with this show was that uh, uh, I've, 
disliked Holzer intensely for a long time. But as often happens with certain artists, I actually get internally exhausted by my disdain for somebody and to a point where it's like an emptying out. Um, but it's, it's something actually that an artist like Bruce Nauman uh, calculates in advance. So he wants you to be absolutely infuriated by him and then you have this kind of emptying out experience and then finally you're sort of anesthetized in a way. Um, and I find that Holtz is somebody who, of the same generation, I think, uh, as an artist, uh, 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 Barbara Kruger, who sort of also I find have found to be very irritating. But um, I found that going from the Whitney, finding it to be uh, a, a rather enervating experience, frankly, and pretentious, uh, pretentious uh, juxtaposition of those two bodies of work, went round the corner to the Scarstedt Gallery where they had some early works of Barbara Kruger. They, the show was called Pre-Digital, and it's actually the handmade collages from which her digital prints are then generated I found I had a real epiphany experience that, that perhaps it was precisely in contrast to uh, Holzer that I, I, saw, I saw that, yes, the penny dropped. Kruger has certain things that Holzer would like to have but doesn't have. Uh, uh, compelling formal design, um, uh, a genuine uh, poetry, and a real sense of humor. Um, yeah, poetry and compelling formal design. Um, those are and two a sense of humor. The sense of humor I find interesting always. Um, poetry is something that terrifies me. As soon as I can describe a work of art as poetic, I worry about it in the extreme. But if it's collage and it's using language, that's an instance where it's not illegitimate. It's not an airy-fairy use of the word poetic. It's actually poetry, because mm -hmm. it's concrete poetry. Because I'm with you. I hate it when people say it's poetic. It means they, got, it means they like it, but they don't know why. <laughs> I was trying to think of a sonnet to recite in yeah. Ick, that's icky. Right. Poetic, so, as opposed to poetry. Yes. Poet, poetastery. Um, I, you know, one of the things that interests me as a, as a critic is that um, negative criticism always, almost always is infinitely less interesting than positive criticism. And I find that actually interesting as a phenomenon, that it's very easy to do a, a bad review, but it's almost never profound. Trying to do a profound negative review is one of the most challenging things, I think. And that's why I'm always tempted to, though most of the time I just do vicious pans, but I'm always tempted, before I do the vicious pan, to, to flip and see if I can actually say something positive only because that has the potential of actually having insight, of saying something profound. And that's why I find it more interesting, though I, I could imagine myself on another day you know, doing an easy, quick pan of, of Holzer. It seems to me more interesting to flip it and see if there's actually an insight that can be gained. And that's almost always, in fact, ends up being positive. And that's one reason I'm in, more interested in going beyond the, what I agree with you could be an easy pan and just seeing if it's possible to generate insight. And to do that, I often have to be positive. Right. I, I, okay, so there's a little bit of a challenge there, although we're running out of time, to make, to, to make my own fairly dismissive feelings, for instance, a little bit thicker, and maybe the way to do that for me would be, Holzer seems to me a, a pretty emblematic interest, uh, example, sorry, of mainstream avant-garde taste. And it seems to me one of the, that technology, light, text, dealing with architecture, she hits a bunch of kind of simple things that intuitively people have an appetite for seeing as, as, as what new art should look like. 
that it should that you should walk into the room and it should not necessarily not be on the walls just in the kind of boring old rectangle way that it should involve should have the kind of just unarguable newness of relatively new technology like LEDs it seems to me that she just hits those things and that the feeling the kind of intuitive feeling before you ever really address the work um, is the feeling of like okay this this hits the categories and for that reason I think that that work will survive even if it doesn't develop and surprise us, which I would love it to do, as emblematic of our time. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I'd be tempted to say is that it's always possible, I know this is a sort of trite, critical move, to imagine that it's actually about that rather than just saying it is that. Right? And that just makes it seems to me more interesting. Okay, right. Well, you can debate that as a critical strategy. But let's move on. Well... One is now on uh, the defensive and using the word poetic, but it seems that um, uh, one can use the word poetic, perhaps, or, or one can allude to poetry, even if it's not poetic, in relation to a film about Michael Hamburger, who's a very distinguished uh, late uh, British-German-born poet. Um, um, Deborah, I'm going to start with you again, if I may. Uh, to, to ask, we'll start with Dean and, and move on uh, afterwards to Prina. Um, uh, an abundance of um, materials here, aren't there, to enjoy or not, um, in that uh, the uh, two different films, both using the um, uh, optical... Um, what do, you, what do you call that? No, 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 no. no. Uh, optical, the, the kind of film. Uh, optical, whatever. Yes. No, it's optical film, whatever. Okay. Optical sound film, uh, but uh, at a different scale. By the way, one thing I would say, I'm very grateful to Muzdeen herself for giving permission that we can uh, show a, an excerpt from that much longer film. But um, um, I had been paying attention to and savoring, uh, precisely because discussions with distinguished people like Deborah and Katie Siegel have, and also at my own instinct, have woken me up to the, the, the medium specificity of different kinds of film and projection. I was savoring the, the rich darkness and uh, uh, misregistration and fuzziness of the, the experience of seeing Michael Hamburger in the gallery, and here's the DVD that they kindly sent us, which is in this pristine color and could almost be, you know, high-tech, um, the best video you could get. So it's a kind of, I'm a little now wondering if I, I was like, like that caricature of looking at the uh, fire extinguisher in a gallery as a piece of minimal art, whether I was misprojecting um, uh, attention, it was a misguided attention to look at the Particular particularities of the quality of the the film in the gallery when it's so different to the video, which I mean the video is actually better. Um, anyhow, the point is this: we've got lots of different things going on here. Um, a, do they uh, come together? And B, what's the highlight? What's the best bit? Well, I'd like to back up a little bit and um, suggest that Tassida Dean is very very involved in the quality of 16 millimeter film. She absolutely adores film, and I wrote down a little quote. She says, film is a medium of silence. You can never film with sound. Sound is separate. You're dealing with a roll of time. 
So it, there are actually three movies, three films in that show. Um, the one of the Joseph Boys space where she couldn't photograph any of the Joseph Boys work, just the uh, jute covered walls which have been repaired, carefully repaired by people for you know a long time. They're very threadbare but beautifully um, repaired. So the camera focuses on these little details of sewing and patches. Uh, then there's the another film is the one of the, the pair, the prisoner pair, and that's actually a rear projection. Um, the, to go back to the boys, there's a little uh, sort of homemade-looking screen set up, and you you know it's in the corner of the room. Then the screen sits in front of the corner, and the projector is behind, you know, in another diagonal to the um, to the uh, to the screen, and well, facing the screen, but it's on the diagonal in the room. So you get this very, and there's a little bench that you sit on, and you see the film, and it's ticking away. You hear it ticking, and you see the imperfections of the film. All of that goes with the little imperfections of the Jew. You know, it's really all of a piece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the rear projection, the pair, the prisoner pair, in that case, you don't see the, uh, any of the parts in the filmmaking. You don't see the projector. You don't hear anything. So but where is it? It's in the wall. Of the same room? No, 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 down the hall. And then the tiny little square. There was some the projector's in a room behind it. Okay. Yeah, but you don't, you're not aware of it in the way that I you are. I totally missed it. Never mind. Okay, carry on. Um, so in, in this case, the fact that it's kind of on a, it's sort of a glass surface, plexi, whatever, but the effect is like an autochrome, an early mm -hmm. photo process from 1907. Was the year it was invented. I looked it up today. Um, so that, that's sort of an autochrome, a beautiful color, a still life, mm. and you, the film loops. You begin um, where it's daylight, and by the end of the loop, it, it, um, yeah. it's gone dark. And I also read that Tacita Dean allows, like she recognizes that, that when she plays these film loops in the galleries, they're going to deteriorate, because they just play ah. continuously for hours and hours. So she, she welcomes that ephemerality that the film actually gets destroyed. Oh, does that answer my point then, that the actual film that one could see at Marion Goodman of Michael Hamburger had a, a yellowing quality and a, a kind of misregistration that we don't get in the pristine cleanness, cleanliness of this, this uh, DVD version of this of the 16 millimeter yeah, I film? I think you are meant to appreciate, to notice and appreciate. To savor the decline. Okay, I, well, so the difference from the perfection of what you can get with a DVD. So I'm amazed she uh, let you have the DVD because I've heard, mm. in fact, I've been told many, many times that she absolutely refuses to release yeah. them on anything except but, film yes, yeah. or let them be seen even for a second. But that doesn't but. account for my personal charm. Ah, well, right. Okay, so um, Blake, then uh, Deborah has begun to describe for us the diversity of materials there, and there's, uh, we've also seen the, uh, the 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 damaged photographs, the big. Things. We don't get one of her blackboards. Uh, uh, a lady of many talents, but does it all come together? Is, it, is the diversity a good thing, or um, is, it, is it a bit of a curiosity shop? Um, I actually think that, well, first I'll just say that I think Tacita Dean, as in her film work, is one of the greatest artists of, of our time. I really think she's a, a very, very, very major figure who will last a, a very long time. I think the other work uh, is completely negligible, as far as I, I'm concerned. Um, it worries me always in these shows that, I mean, it's absolutely true that someone who makes 16 millimeter films that deteriorate probably needs something to sell to make a living. And I always feel that those works 
just feel like souvenirs of other work that she's done. Although, not as badly as some figures who simply do stills, for instance, from videos. At least they're different, but they don't seem to have any of the importance or complexity or interest of the, the films. In fact, I would like eat, the popcorn in the movie. I would go so far as to say the photographs are almost poetic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a damning phrase. Um, it's a shame we don't get one of the blackboards, so aren't they rather spectacular, even if you're a, primarily a devotee of the, the film? Um, I find them a little, somehow a little coy, a little precious, but um, compared to the films, which I find right. really immediate and, and direct. Um, they are immediate and direct, but also coy and precious, I, I find. I mean, I don't think that those, those qualities are necessarily um, incompatible. Alexi, which, what's the main event with Tasta Dean and in, in general and in this show? I would love to be able to disagree with Blake, and we, we so often disagree that I'm, I'm startled now to find that I Actually, could have I said the Tassadine. same words. I think she's a terrible <laughs> Thank artist. Thank you, Blake. Absolutely oh, devoid of any Now interest. we're on firmer ground. That seems just right to me. I think that the photographs are just without um, a great deal of interest, and that the films are where her real art lies. And there is this tricky thing that they... <clears throat> You have to kind of tune yourself a little bit maybe to their mood. To me, the, the prisoner pair piece is too precious. And yeah, there, I agree. The piece, the it's idea so precious, that it's, I didn't even see it. <laughs> well, you know. Where, where the hell was it? I mean, I, I felt really, uh -huh. there's, you know, there are these two, two bottles and they've probably been sitting in Philip Hamburger's cellar for 40 years and their pairs are slowly, uh, you know, sweetening to some amazing nectar presence and little bubbles drift upwards, a little nice. bit of dirt on the outside, and you can almost hear, I don't know, some, some plummy-voiced actor saying, we serve no pears before their time. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's not where you want her to be. And there's an aspect, I mean, like anybody who's a pretty strong um, sensibility, it's mockable, you know, that, I think that's true of a lot of her work, that it's, it's coy, it's precious. I think of it a little bit, you know, the guy who writes those little things at the bottom of the, op, of the Times editorial page, Verlin Klinkenborg, about the past, and if it's spring, he writes one about how and now it's spring, and if it's fall, you know what you're gonna get. And they're a little Verlin Klinkenborgian. No. Uh, that's the downside. Let me just, can I just explain one thing? Actually, you're wrong about what those pairs are, and I, maybe she, they should have explained it, but those pairs are actually the, the, the fruit bud of the tree is inserted into the bottle and the bottle is tied to the tree. So there's no, there is a sort of weird thing happening. Those are in situ bottles with pears in them that have grown into them. I so thought I saw the stem cut, no? I, you shouldn't have done, um, unless you faked it, which would be I, That makes sense, but I, I was looking, I, I, well, anyway. Okay, maybe, maybe she faked it. No, and, and also a further detail is that on the bottom of one, and, and you had an image of it, um, that re the region where this is, where they do this to the pears is Alsace-Lorraine. So that's why she called it prisoner pear. It's an allusion to the battle you know, between France and Germany over this particular territory. And in fact, the show as a whole, what unites the show, David, is, yes. is that um, she's been living in Germany since 2000. She's had one of those DAAD grants. Yes, yes. So she's Lucky been her. thinking deeply about you know, German history, German mm -hmm. culture, German writers. So all of the works in the show in different ways refer to some aspect mm. of German history and culture. So that's what unites it, whether or not you think mm. it works and looks good together. That's what she's doing. That's, that, that makes conceptual sense. It seemed to me that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with the other two gentlemen here, that um, uh, uh, there was a spread of material, but the the hamburger film was, I mean, no pun, that, that was the meat of the uh, <laughs> of this show. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to 
That is a pun, David. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it, it seemed to me... Uh, I, I mean, I, I was a little jealous because I... I'm I'm working on a book. It's it's not the history of pubic hair, but it's it's it's, it's a, not everyone can have a bestseller. Not everyone can know. have a bestseller. Uh, I was working on a book, and uh, the subject of this book is somebody known personally to Michael Hamburg, who has valuable information about my my subject. Uh, and alas, he's no longer with us. And so I kind of wished that I could have talked to him about something other than apples. But at the same time, I thought this was a beautiful, beautiful film. I, I it was. It wasn't. I didn't feel I was at the movies. I felt I was looking at a great painting. But the painting happened not to use oil and canvas. It really was using optical sound. And uh, it was a very, very rich. And it was also a wonderful encapsulation of, of, of still life, portraiture, uh, and, and deeper meaning. Um, like Cezanne, he got more from apples and apples. She got more from apples and apples. And um, yeah, I thought it was just really lovely art. Well, I didn't think Stephen Prina was lovely art, though. Does anyone like to disavow me of that fact and tell me that there was something profound going on in that show? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There were things I liked about that show, and I think, in a way, the two shows among... The, there's a bunch of little connections between those two shows, as, as your pairing points out, but um, one of them is I think that they're... They, they, there's a lot of sort of hidden amplitudes and a lot of like special information that you can or cannot maybe get to them. And um, before you have it in the Stephen Prina show, I thought there were a few little moves that were fun. So um, one of them is the, the projector just shining into your eyes. It's not really shining into those two window blinds, but that just seems like it's, it's, it's fun to have, to walk into the view of the projector, the little three white, white places. The, the, then the blinds, which are painted up to the reach of your arms, basically. S simple, formal things. Um, the, there's a couple of other moves. It seems to me that unlike her work, um, he's, he's kind of genuine making objects. There's, there's a part of his actual skill set is is doing stuff in the gallery, um, and that, that that's not a negligible part of it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't divide the work up the way we did with Dean. But they're both, interestingly, doing kind of homage films, so that his film, which um, all of the work in that show kind of relates to this absent film, which is a little annoying, mm -hmm. but his film is homage to this architect named Bruce Goff, in the same way that hers is an homage to, to um, Philip. Uh, to Michael Hamburger. Although I think the crucial thing about both of them is that they're, uh, they're ab absolutely failed homages and they seem to misdirect us terribly. That is, the thing that, that Prina's film is of is in fact not a piece of, of Goff architecture. That's apparently, or I think, <clears throat> is a pre-extant structure that's outside of the house. That's not actually something he built. So it's a looking away from the, the actual building. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. Um, and in her case, you have a, someone who is, in theory, a great translator and poet. I haven't read his poetry. And what do you find him talking about? His a bunch poetry. of apples. It seems to me... Well, he reads one of his poems, well, he gets right? Well, he gets via the apples to Ted Hughes and, and the fleetingness of life, and, you know. There's more to those apples if we want to know. Exactly. As Maya Shapiro told us of Cezanne. Um, tell, defend Prina, if you would. 
I found very little in the Prina show to hang on to or enjoy or get. Um, I understood the fact that he was making reference to the architect and that he himself is from LA, so he was drawing this connection between himself and the architect. And, you know, similar to um, Tacita Dean, in, in a sense, there's a strategy. Well, hold on, let me back up. For me, in Tacita Dean's case, it's as if she uses this, uh, this wish to make allusions and references you know, to sort of touch boys, to, to touch Michael Hamburger, to touch the, the pairs, the prisoner pair, you know, the violence of the historical, you know, the history. She, she touches these things as a strategy in order to link them up and have a motive to make work. Um, and you don't really need to know that, but it's there, it's, it's layered in if you, you know, it's not hard to find. Um, and in Prina's case, you, He's making a similar. He's, gener he's using a similar strategy in order to generate work. But um, I have no sense of what it is, and I don't care, and I can't. I can't find it, and it's it's internal to him. But there just isn't much to see. I know. Uh, uh, me first. Um, what interested me about the show was the fact that I went with two extremely experienced art lookers, and I'm surrounded here um, by other experienced art lookers. And there was a kind of profound befuddlement. That is, it's not like Holzer, where I think there's a very credible, straightforward attack on it that you have to sort of, in order to praise her, you have to get around the attack, which seems a perfectly credible one. Prina actually does something sort of amazing, which is silence a bunch of extremely experienced attackers. That is, it's not that the people I went with or the people on, uh, on this panel have found easy ways of dismissing him. He's actually managed to, to befuddle us. And if nothing else, that's a pretty rare thing, I think. If in you know, a life as an art critic, mm -hmm. mostly you know exactly how to attack something or even exactly how to praise it. To have something that leaves you a little um, off kilter, a little off balance, strikes me as interesting right there and makes me want to actually deal with it and, and figure out at least a way to attack the thing. That seems interesting to me. Uh -huh. Well, it just seems befuddled to me. I mean, what, 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 what was it about? I'm, I'm too befuddled to say. Okay. I, don't, I don't know. But here's, here's again, I, I don't want to go way to town. Uh, I wish I could, just for, again, the purposes of antagonism, but def defending it or making out. But, but there were little notes that I liked. And one, maybe the best one I was forgetting before is in the, the film, there's only one um, spoken piece. There's one moment where, where you hear a voice. And the voice says, just at the start, at first it's just blank white. And the room looks kind of weird with the white rug and this little deck that, that he tends to, he builds these little like uh, wooden units that hold the, the projection equipment. Um, and the, so there's three screens appear and they're white and they illuminate the room. And then the, the film starts and you hear a voice say, that's the one. And it's, it's a weird little phrase. It's totally understandable. In a way, it's not understandable, right? Who, what, what are they talking about? You never know. Nothing else is ever said. But I felt like, you know, it's like that's the take. It's somebody saying, we now, we, we had a bunch of options and we knew what to choose and, and there's a kind of rote enthusiasm as if um, in editing a, a film or in um, doing, producing music or something like that, they've got the right material now. And it seemed to me just quietly funny that because everything else is so unclear that this opening decisive moment of like, obvious choice should be the kind of starting note. Because 
it's, you know, it's absent everywhere else, but it just, it seemed kind of right to set that up and then, then take it all away. Same thing with the, the 20 images of these two banal trees that are on another wall. Identical frames. Waldo, spot the difference. Um, sort of, yeah, yes. and some of them are a little bit blurry, and some of them, but they're basically the same trees. They're basically totally nothing much. It's both basically, but it's but they but they run right across the wall, and there just seemed to me a kind of a little bit of a sassing the viewer attitude in them. That I don't want to make out that it's great shakes, but it seemed to me that there was something pleasurable about somebody so carefully framing something that was, you know. The right kind of nothing much. It wasn't flipping us off exactly, but it but it had this kind of like nuanced, um, irritable, shrewd gesture there that made me not in love with the show, but interested in the the mind that put it together and curious about what he might do next. I mean, to, to get back to the the ju- it's just befuddling. Um, you know, if I think about it, I don't know that. Um, David, you're often befuddled. I mean, I don't find myself often being completely befuddled. And when I think about examples of the great befuddlers, you know, Cezanne springs to mind, Velazquez, Titian. I'm not saying that Prina is the next Cezanne. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty interesting that, that he manages to, to befuddle us um, in a way I've, that really doesn't happen very often. I mean, almost always you can, you can pigeonhole a work of art. You can say uh, why it's good or bad or poetic or whatever. Um, but Look, it seems uh, when to you me go to an art school, and I go to an art school more times a week than I perhaps should, but when you go to an art school, you're dealing with people with a certain competence, and they make work, and the intentions are absolutely transparent. You can read it like a book. They fall off their feet when you say, what you were trying to do was X, Y, and Z. So you're not befuddled because they're students. They're not yet at the level of creating work with the richness and ambiguity that the intentions are, to some extent, submerged. Okay, now, artists who are beyond being like an art school student uh, have something in common with kids who are not yet art school students. They make work that's slightly befuddling. Okay, but the quality of befuddlement is fundamentally different between a 16-year-old who's not yet good enough to go to art school and Titian. And I'm, I'm, my feeling is No, that I disagree Prina, with you completely on that. That, that, that Prina is probably a little closer to the 16-year-old than he is to Titian. It's, you, you've, got, um, you've got pretentious, precious work that's just not in any way cohering. You've got those, uh, that wall of uh, painting, drawing works on paper, uh, sort of half sort of making you think that there may be some lettering that might be worth reading and then half making you realise that you can't. But that, that's not really the kind of Beckett-like ambiguity, is it, that one's <laughs> looking for in the sort of truly befuddling art. I mean, Beckett's befuddling. Prina's just irritating. <laughs> Actually, I think Bucket, Beckett's befuddling in a much more straightforward way because he's about befuddling. It seems to me that there's the possibility, I'm really not going to bat for the content in Prina, but there's the possibility that this is a befuddlement about something else rather than just befuddlement as a, as a, as a fact itself. Um, I don't know the 16-year-olds who produce befuddling art. They almost always produce cliches. Almost all of us 
from the age of three know more or less what it is to make a work of art. You know, three-year-olds make pictures of houses. Um, Mm. So I don't actually know the 16-year-olds who make befuddling work. I, I wish well, I did. Well, they're the 16-year-olds who don't know whether to write a pop song or draw a picture or, um, <laughs> or try to play the violin or uh, uh, write uh, poetry about their uh, existential fears. That's the sort of befuddlement because it's just not quite anywhere yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I think... I don't want to necessarily have the last word on Prina, but uh, unless, unless there's something we've all missed, I think it might be a good point to ask the audience, uh, either to stand up for Prina or challenge us on uh, Dean or uh, go take us back to uh, Jenny Holzer. There's, there's three um, artists we could be talking about. Uh, yes. Uh, and there is a mic, so do wait for the mic so that the recording can pick up your points. And... Um, uh, okay, uh, concerning Prina, in Buddhism, uh, one of the first things one is taught is that there's an object and one feels either desire, hate, you were talking about praise or attack, and indifference and ignorance. And this one is the one the artist does not want to have because that just means people go in, pass by, nothing in memory. When one desires an object or one hates it, one has a dialogue leaving the gallery. So that's what I say about Prina. Indifference Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. Maybe the Buddhists are wrong, in fact. Maybe indifference is actually interesting. Well, you can argue with the Buddha. I was just bringing up one of his precepts. Now, for Ginny Holzer. Okay, there's a wonderful book by Matt McGee, and it's interviews with all of the great teachers starting with Aristotle, Plato, working up to Wittgenstein. And one of the most interesting conversations was with an instructor of medieval philosophy, which is usually considered dancing on the head of a pen. And uh, Jenny Holzer is interesting because Lawrence Weiner is non-secretorial text bites, formally arranged on a wall. And uh, James Geary wrote a book called The World in a Phrase, a collection of aphorists, he mapped out history of aphorisms. Instead of the history of the pubic hair, he's written a book on the history of aphorisms, starting with hair. Did he have any aphorisms about pubic hair? I need this desperately for my book. Um, He has a website. I'm on it, too. I write aphorisms. Okay. So it has Heraclitus and it has Jenny Holzer. Harry Clitus, did you say? Harry. <laughs> I have some interesting pubic hair stories, but I'll tell you them later. Oh, no. Lake would like oh, to hear no. them afterwards. But yes. don't interrupt, please. For a writer of aphorisms, this is a kind of a long question. Are you interested in what medieval philosophy has to tell us now? About Jenny Holzer. No, about analytical word. philosophy um, in I the discussion. Think, to be honest. To no, be no, honest. second. One second. He said that. Philosophy had mapped out since Descartes, what can we know? It's changing into what do things mean? And um, medieval philosophy brought up the ontological question and what is a just war? So Ginny Holzer's is in this interesting space, not John Ashbery, not uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, not non sequiturs, which are very modern since Dada and postmodern. She's suspending something between non sequiturs and traditional Karl Krauss, I read a biography of him, aphorisms, truisms. They're suspended between non sequiturs and traditional aphorisms. I think she's very strong. 
Great. Thank, Thank you. you. That, that's, that's worth hearing. Excellent. Great. Great. Uh, other comments? Uh, yes, Carol Deal, who was our panelist in, uh, last time. I'd like to go on the record as not valuing befuddlement. And also, to go back to Jenny Holzer, I asked someone close to her the question because I um, was wondering about the translation of these documents into oil paintings. And the answer I got was that these documents will live, have a lot much longer life. They will not be destroyed, they will be kept, they have a provenance in a way that documents on the web and documents on paper will not. Mm -hmm. Good point, thank you very much. The lady, a couple of rows behind, Carol. Is this on? Yeah. Mm. I had a very interesting experience in the Prina show. Uh, first of all, the person I was there with made the point that the projector, projecting the light at you as you walk into the room was really quite an aggressive thing. And um, you were protect protected from the light by the two yellow shades or whatever. It's sort of an interesting push-pull in terms of your relationship to that. I then went down the wall and looked at those images of the trees and found at the end when the images changed significantly and started to get blurry, I felt dropped. I felt someone was really playing with me. And I wasn't certain actually where I was in relation to that work. And I had the same sense when I went into the room with the three video screens, all of different sizes and all a little bit obfuscated and hard to reach, but once again, I felt toyed with. So I felt actually the, the work felt to me almost, I would say aggressive is a bit strong, but um, I had a very distinct response to it emotionally. And I, I also wanted to say I really liked your comment about the um, work with the apples um, uh, of uh, Dean's work. Uh, I felt that particular video was extremely um, evocative of Cezanne. Can I just say one thing about um, the Prina, and this is uh, just something that suddenly struck me, which is that a lot of the reactions, the notion of it being aggressive, of it being even aggressively befuddling, etc., and I'm just going to put this out there, and I'm not, again, trying to say that he's one of the greatest artists, but those are exactly the kind of things that are frequently said of artists who, in fact, in the long run, turn out to be very interesting, Cezanne, for instance, that there's nothing there, that it's a silly device, that it's trying to shock you, or that it's a deliberate obfuscation. I mean, all of those kind of things are typical things that are said of art that is in difficult, in fact, and not just empty. So it's just to throw that out there, it is a little cautionary note that that's just the kind of things that were said about Cezanne and all sorts of other, or uh, well, Manet, for that matter, as well. And again, I'm not saying that he's up with them, but it is interesting to note that those are the kind of things that are said of art. Um, the, the only things left to say, in a sense, about art that's genuinely turns out to be interesting. Okay. Another comment? Any, uh, anybody? Yeah. Maybe good. we should just we move should on. move on. That's uh, that's always a good thing to do. Move on. Dot org. Let's. Um, Let's, uh, we can do it. Alexi, you're a painter whose, whose work plays with and, and draws from and evokes sometimes the language of the comic. Did you feel, um, forgive me if it's a faux pas to ask the critic a question that also relates to his practice as a painter, but um, 
how, how should we negotiate the, the, the mad magazine element of Peter Saul, the, the, the comic book element? Um, I guess the thing I would say is that there's a kind of um, what seems like a relatively familiar American animation cartooning style that relatively few artists have drawn upon. And I think it leads us, or the art world anyway, to underestimate the interest and power of Saul's work. And I think that in the last 10 years, there's been a change for sure. And um, Rob Storr and um, Jerry Saltz and others especially have been championing this work for a while. So um, there's a pretty significant cohort of people who admire it. But um, I think it remains outside uh, the kind of um, tacit dean championing um, Art of the art world, especially in Europe, um, and remains deliberately uh, difficult in its vulgarity and draws in a way that turns out to be surprisingly alive and worthwhile on this American colloquial idiom of tubular forms and um, kind of elementary excitements that to, to me gives it um, I have qualifications and qualms, but fundamentally I'm a huge fan and hugely grateful for the kind of jolt of libidinal um, refreshment and the kind of slap to decorum that the work again and again gives me. There's certainly a slap to decorum, but Blake, um, Alexei stresses the Americanness of Saul. I, I see a lot of the language of surrealism in there as well, Mata, Miro, uh, Tongi. Um, do you think formally, when you look at them, that you find yourself thinking in national terms at all or in, in stylistic terms? Or are you simply a, a sort of jolted and affronted by the, the, what's going on in these pictures? Um, I'm not jolted or affronted even a tiny bit. And in fact, I'm so aware of those other things that in a sense I'm willing to deny that Saul is the author of this art at all. Um, I'm really <laughs> interested in um, what Alexi was just saying about the rediscovery of Peter Saul. And I'm always interested in those moments when artists are rediscovered, like when Vermeer is rediscovered in whatever it is, 1851. Um, I think that that sometimes indicates that what you're looking at actually is a ready-made, that you're not, in, in a funny sense, looking at Peter Saul's work at all. You're looking at the work that's made by the rediscoverers, that he's more like the Mott Ironworks uh, than, like the, than Duchamp, even, for that matter. Um, that, in fact, what's happening here is that um, Saul has been rediscovered because he's just right for our moment um, in various different ways, and I don't mean that necessarily as praise. Um, he's rediscovered because he appeals, for instance, to um, the huge cohort of younger artists who are interested in sort of scribbling in the back of your notebook with a ballpoint pen. I mean, if we've seen this at art schools you know, by the, by the ton. Um, so it seems to me that he, he fills a need. Um, the other thing that struck me really strongly is how digital his works look. That is, how much they look like a computer screen, also in their collage. It seems to me to fill a need for a certain kind of fairly superficial naughtiness that's there in the art world, a kind of juvenile naughtiness. And as a result, what we're really seeing here is art made by the people looking at it, made by the people valorizing it, and made by the art students who, of course, absolutely adore Saul. He is an. He, he, uh, De Deborah, did you find uh, 
I'm a little, uh, they do work exceptionally well as a PowerPoint presentation, but actually they seem to have quite a lot of surface going on in them. How, how, did you feel at all arrested by the surface or was it transparent to the image for you? Oh no, I was very taken with the surface that um, uh, other critics have described as powdery, uh, no not powdery, spongy, maybe powdery, powdery, spongy, um, that, I mean it isn't like, super raised surface, but in order to achieve the color that he does, there's a lot of, um, what's it, it's scumble, technical term, is that? It, it's I think spongilism. <laughs> spongilism, okay, spongilism. That's a disease, Spongilism is good. So however he's, you know, kind of stamping the it's paint dappled. on or whatever. Yeah, uh, dapple, yeah. That just strikes me as sort of interestingly allied to, to pixelation, though. There does seem to be that mm. kind of making up an image of lots of, lots of bits that are repeated. Um, immediately evoked for me, especially in those colors, what it is to look at the low resolution of a, of a mm. computer screen. Did you find yourself being affronted, uh, Deborah, by the, the, the squalor of, of his um, uh, vision or imagination, or liberated? Alexei used the word libidinal. Where were you emotionally with these paintings? Well, the, the palette actually put me off, um, and the imagery, you know, um, kind of guys having fun sort of thing, maybe, you know, I sort of tried to take it on that level, war, violence, drinking, sex, um, stringing up blondes and, you know, the knife and all that, all that good stuff, scatological, on and on. Um, but the high, the very high saturated color, the, you know, the screaming color and, uh, and you know, there's a, a way that the surface sort of the compositions keep, they're always in motion. It's, you don't really settle down on any one area. I found myself always, always moving. But I think the palette sort of put me off as much as the yes, content. Yes, as, as the content. It was just a little too high for me. Hmm. And, but I was interested to see that he was an influence on um, Elizabeth Murray and- One can see that, yes. Well, that was, said somewhere and so that high color is it's a, the a Chicago feature. thing isn't it Alexi mm. um, it's a very much a Chicago hairy I think he was in Chicago and I, th I think that's right I mean yes. uh, this has been written about that yes yes um, what is it about Chicago? I mean, they, uh, it's a, whenever I go to Chicago, it seems to be beautiful architecture, friendly people. And when you come out of it and you see art from Chicago, you must you think this art's come from the seventh circle of hell or something. I mean, uh, what is it about Chicago? Is it the Midwest? Is it is it guilt at all those cattle they've slaughtered? Why why do they paint such squalor? Uh. Anyone? I think the lovely thing about this is that it proves the whole notion that works of art are in any way tied to an essence of place is complete, mm. completely bogus as a concept. The fact that the Harry Who comes from beautiful skyscraper Chicago is a mm. lovely example of how that, in fact, is a, doesn't work as a, as a Precisely. conceit. And in fact, if you go to California, sunny California, the, the art there is all about, uh, di uh, you know, you know uh, what they call it? Um, uh, Denigration. Well, no, there's another word for it. Never mind. Uh, uh, it's it, the, the, yeah. I think I think I'm, I'm just free free association. Abjection. That's the word Abjection. I was after. Abjection. Oh yeah. Abjection, Abjection comes from California, and Harry who comes from Chicago. Uh, it's it's bizarre. But uh, is he? Are you are you making a case for him as a kind of Goya figure? Do you think these are profound paintings about the human condition, or do you think this is a dirty old man having a bit of a joke at our expense? 
Um, <laughs> Those are your only two options, I'm afraid, <laughs> A or B. Well, you gotta, you gotta choose B. There's no, no, uh, there's no two ways about that. Um, I think he'd want you to choose B, in fact. Okay. But I, I feel like there's a, it's not just anti-decorum, there's a kind of paranoia about decorum. A kind of, a kind of there's a kind of layer of, um, it's not thoughtfulness like in Coons, where you feel a kind of corporatizing of vulgarity. It's, 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 it's um, I, I, you feel a kind of genuineness and a kind of shrugging off of editorializing in a way that um, makes the compulsion more, um, more genuine, more powerful, more enjoyable. And, and it seems to me um, like a, a, a fantastic um, counterweight to all kinds of other things. I'll be looking at something else and the thought of Saul will come into my mind, and, I'll, and it'll, you know, I mean, in the way, Saul and Tacitus Dean is amusing already, right? I, just, like, I think the they should do a two-person show. Wouldn't that be lovely? Right, but the thought of him going into the show and leaving a little drawing in the book, you know, what would, it just, it, it's a sensibility that there, it seems to me, for whatever reasons, there's not a lot of it. And, and um, but here's the thing, I feel like there's also a kind of condescending, patronizing liking of Saul that is a danger to the work's growth. And I'm, I'm curious about where Saul goes next. Because in 2000, there's this terrific catalog he did um, with uh, an interview with Carol Dunham. It's called The Heads Show. Yes. It was at Nolan Eckman. Carol Dunham. He talked about the changing the way he works and pre-planning less. And, and the pre-planning, you know, there, there have been some technical changes, but there's an element of blandness and boredom in the technique, the spongilism, whatever it is. And that's the big question for me is the work doesn't, you don't want it to be boring, right? And yet, even in this show, there are some areas around like that bedroom painting, which a friend of mine was comparing interestingly to these bedroom Picassos just a few blocks down. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, the, but the Saul bedroom painting, it had, you know, it had as much, arguably anyway, I mean, it'd be fun to see them together, as much, um, embarrassing, grotesque stuff going on in the middle of the painting, but then the, the kind of astroturf floor got kind of dull. Got kind of, you didn't, and I found myself thinking, I like the insistence of the technique, the insistence that he's gonna do this formulaic thing, partly because that's, mm -hmm. it's not just a like improv thing. It means taking the, the, the whole premise more seriously, but it puts him in this weird position of making relatively boring parts of the painting. Sometimes they, they overcome that. And like for, for me, that hot dog, that long hot dog self-portrait was like a high point of the show. Where it totally, the technique totally, everything comes together. When you talk about technical changes, I, I saw his retrospective in, uh, at Paffer in Philadelphia, uh, which is perhaps deliberately hung a chronologically. I can uh, uh, take a word for it or appreciate or research myself and discover that there have been some technical variants uh, in, in the course of his quite long career. But there seems to be the one same nagging, gnawing sort of um, uh, vision throughout. And I, I find that, that, that um, I, I, you know, you talk about some passages of the painting become a bit boring. I mean, all the painting is boring. It's, it's about, it's a graphic image. And it, in fact, it actually gets more powerful condensed and on, on this screen here, uh, to my mind than as, as paintings. Um, yes. 
I was just going to take issue, surprise, surprise, with Alexi. Um, I think I've seen attitudes like that fairly frequently among 15-year-old boys, and the boyishness of his work really troubles me and certainly troubled the woman I went to see the show with. It seems to be a very traditional gesture for very traditional... I hate to use the word bad boy, that's almost flattery, mm -hmm. but there is a sense of 15-year-old, you know, a 15-year-old fuck you, which is the simplest fuck you of all, um, I mean, I think that we have to take seriously a woman who's made entirely of nipples and vaginas and ask ourselves, I mean, and say, that's content. And uh, is it interesting in any way? Is it offensive? It's not even that. It seems to me just the kind of thing that a 15-year-old boy with a, a troubled libido would jot in the back of his... Uh, big time, big time. It's bathroom graffiti. It takes it... Some people work out of, out of um, doodling. He, that stuff is... It channels and is bathroom graffiti. But... What you're saying is true. I feel like the work is a little tricky to think through for me in that that's right. There's a kind of glibness to it. That's, that's a, a limitation to it that I'm, I'm troubled by. And yet that woman is hard to look at or that female protuberance vagina creature. It's genuinely like it's hard to look at. And it's, well, it's, all, you know. look. it's all hard to look at, isn't it? I mean, he, it would be a failure for him to give us an apple. I mean, he wants it all to be hard to look at. That's his, uh, that's his default mode. My point is just that you oscillate back and forth between thinking, okay, I know this kind of trans ostensibly transgressive move here, and I'm not, I'm not shocked. And, 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 and I feel like there's a kind of patchwork of genuine, of, of, of really feeling those responses, of really being a little unwilling to keep looking at it. Do, you, do, do either of you feel that... Well, I'd like to hear Deborah's view on this, because I brought up the issue exactly. of gender. Gender, okay, gender, girl, gender. Well, oh. I'm oh. not saying she has to address the issue of gender. <laughs> You're our token woman, please address the issue of gender. Well, I was, I was right. just um, sitting here months. sort of thinking, you know, in the, in the sense of putting Saul together with Tacita Dean. How, how about putting Saul together with Jenny Holzer for a minute to, yeah. you know, work with I was the, going to. Oh. I was, I mean, uh, when I was, uh, sure Gabby and I were doing the PowerPoint, and I was saying, this is the order. And I'm thinking, no, uh, we're putting all the video people and, and new mm -hmm. medium people together and then doing painting at the end. Let's instead do the people who are ostensibly about the political condition, Holzer and Saul. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah. Well, I was thinking in terms of the, um, you know, the cartoony quality, the outrageous, the Arkham and Jenny Holzer's... Um, uh, political stance being, you know, the serious aspect, but the R. Crumb was very political. You know, that illustration, that whole era, that was a very critical, very critical cartoons. You know, they're not child's mm. cartoons. They're mm. really grown-up stuff, and they're full of sex and violence. And, um, you know, the Holzer goes to dark places, but kind of I don't know, I hate to say from a woman's perspective, but she is a, a woman. I mean, it's a different approach to the um, obscenity of war and the obscenity of, of mm -hmm. the, you know, humans treating each other in this, you know, sort of, you know, the worst, bringing out the worst in, in everybody. Um, so they are sort mm -hmm. of incomparable in a, in a funny way. But you could say that Holtz uh, is, is, is going beyond gender by saying, you know, this is not about masculine aggression. This is mechanization. This is our, our whole system. This yeah, that's is, sort of, sort of what more, I meant. A bit more politically astute. Well, she comes out of the, she may come out of the personal is political, you know, it's, whole feminist stance. And it's Marx, not Jung, in other words. Mm. I don't know if I would 
agree with that. I'm okay. not sure quite what you mean by that. Neither am I, just a few names <laughs> to throw out. Um, but I think I don't think that Peter Saul has any any reason. I mean, that's fine if if that's his fantasy and that's what mm -hmm. turns him on and that's what's fun for him. I don't see that as um, politically incorrect necessarily. Mm. Not not really. Um, I think of it as as, as um, um, uh, a much older version of Ashley Bickerton. Really, mm. actually, I don't think. I mean, they may come from a different cultural milieu and they may have different people championing them. But I think, uh, essentially, there's not very much difference between a, a Peter Saul and a, a painting by Ashley Bickerton. Well, I also um, walked down the street and looked at the Picasso show, Picasso's, um, mm -hmm. mus what are they, the Muscatos? The whatever, oh, yeah. the Picasso show at Gagosian. Musketeers, you Musketeers, say. thanks. Um, and, you know, whereas Saul d deliberately tries, you know, sets out to be vulgar and shocking and, and all of that, I thought that the Picasso was really risky in terms of the way they were painting, mm -hmm. the way they were painted and um, offensive in a, in a certain way, like edgy. So, you know, that's sort of a, maybe it's a crazy comparison, but looking at the Saul made me want to go and look at Picasso's, uh, this particular Picasso show and, and look at somebody who was using paint in, in sort of a risky, improvisatory way. The graphic aspect, you know, looks mm -hmm. illustration, like illustration to me, and I, it's just not a type of painting that I'm interested in. I, I much prefer the, um, that spontaneous. Great. I think we should bring in the audience then and see what that's some comments about Peter Saul from the audience. And um, our own Marshall Price at the back has his hand up, so pass him the mic. Um, you know, I... I I'm kind of surprised that, uh, I mean, Deborah, you alluded to this, but um, I kind of understand Peter Saul as part of the lineage of um, satirical cartoons. I mean, going all the way back, you know, to the 18th century in England with Gil Ray and people oh, like girl. that. And I think, uh, Alexi, you mentioned that there's a, an, a, an inherent glibness in the work, and I think that's, that, that's because of that. It's, or, or it's a manifestation of, of, of his sort of intention um, and also, as far as Chicago goes, you know, there was a very important surrealist exhibition to travel to the Art Institute mm -hmm. in the mid-40s, and it, it sort of set off a chain reaction that clearly is still going on today um, with a number of groups. The, I think you mentioned um, the Harry Who and the Nonplussed and others, so. Can, are we yes, please allowed do. to respond? Um, it's interesting that you should talk about it in terms of the history of political cartooning and of art that's political, one of the things that seems central about that kind of work is its situation and its time. That is, I agree with you that in, uh, let's say, the late 60s, Peter Saul occupied that space. But I'll come back again to the notion that what's interesting for me about him is that, in a way, he didn't exist for mainstream art for quite a long time. And it seems to me that what we have now is a different artist. He's not, in fact, in that context anymore. So his political content is I don't know, maybe vitiated. It seems like he's a completely different artist than he was back then. And what we have to do is deal with the Peter Saul that is an artist of the 21st century because that's how he's functioning. And I think as an artist of the 21st century, he's not functioning as um, a political cartoonist in that sense. He doesn't have teeth. I mean, I was thinking as Alexi was talking about them being shocking, I was thinking of what would happen, and I haven't done this, if you put into a Google search engine, you know, pig, uh, dildo, and manacle then you probably would get something that would genuinely upset you. It seems to me that this is a kind of placeholder in the art world, in the sort of 
the etiolated consciousness of the art world for the shocking, but it doesn't actually seem to function as the shocking, and maybe it even functions as a kind of palatable market distraction from the real shocking, shock that's out there. It seems to me a kind of uh, a commercializable distraction so you don't have to think about things that are genuinely distressing. But I wonder, I wonder, Blake, if that's merely a product of his being around for so long. I mean, if he were sort of straight out of art school, if we were looking at these paintings by an artist straight out of art school, would we find them more shocking? I, I don't know, maybe, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Can we take I the mic? Think. Thank you, Marshall, very much. To the front of the row, uh, to Svetlana, the lady in the second from the row and from the front. Wait for, the, wait for the mic, if you would, please. I wanted to pick up on being around a long time, because I think that's something about Holzer, too. I mean, in other words, the question is what, do, I mean, Picasso is a good example. I haven't yet gotten to the Alex Katz um, 15 minutes. Uh, 15, sorry, 15, he called 15 it. 15 right? minutes, yes. Did he say minute? He included the minutes. But a question of what do you do when you're around a long time, right? And Picasso did one thing. Katz is doing something very different. I haven't seen that show. And it seems to me that Holter's a bit trapped in what she does. I mean, that's my sense. Uh, um, she ought to kick us over and do something else. But, I mean, I think all the discussion shows that. And I think the question about Saul is also an interesting one. I mean, one could put the question, has he moved is this a move, what we've described, what you've described, or is he in a sense stuck? I mean, he's sort of spinning his wheels. I think Holzer is stuck, and the Times has been having a lot of stuff about old age, this and that. There was A.J. Scott, A.L. Scott, what he is on old filmmakers, the BAM thing they've been having, and they, I mean, they've been, for some reason, maybe because Picasso's in town, and maybe because Alex is doing it, it's on, but it seems to me an interesting question. How do people perceive what happens? And we have it with Holzer, and I think we might have it with Solve. I don't know what to say about it, and certainly with Picasso. I mean, Picasso is very much working out of himself. He is his own past, but he did slash through, and one painting a day to keep alive, he did manage to do some pretty terrible stuff and some pretty wonderful stuff, it seems to me. Thank you. Uh, lady the hair on the other side, on the other side. <laughs> Was he not in Chicago at all? Hi. Thank you. Hi. Shush. I'd just like to say as a caveat that I did not see the Saul show. I'm only commenting based on the, with the projections. Um, but I'd like to take the position, actually, that I think Saul is a feminist. Um, I, uh, um, and I think that, um, and I wouldn't have said that except for uh, a couple things. Um, is the, the de Kooning piece, uh, the de Kooning, and then also the, the, the woman, the two women, I mean the woman, uh, the, the grotesque sort of body. And to me, what I saw is that he, um, I, uh, I'm trying to try to be, I want to be linear here, but there's like other thoughts coming in. I want to reference German expressionism, which I was surprised well, you didn't mention. Well, there's one that's homage to Beckman, yes. And uh, also uh, the banality of evil. And I think like the grotesque, like, the, all the Bernie Madoff stuff, like it seems like such an easy thing to, um, uh, you know, poke fun at or, or to comment on, but like he takes this banal figure, like it's clearly all political commentary and he's taking these, this really banal figure, but he's making it like so disgusting and so grotesque, like in a way that you, again, can't walk away from it. And to me, the comment, uh, the de Kooning and the sort of Picasso-esque thing was like taking these masters and by making uh, the women like so disgusting, it was like saying, um, 
the reason I'm saying he's a feminist is like I, I feel like he was pointing out the grotesqueness underneath their art that you're sort of not allowed to maybe comment on, like that Picasso doesn't really like women. He had tons of wives and he was like, <laughs> but like they're beautiful, so you're not allowed to sort of, but by making them, by taking the de Kooning and just mm -hmm. making them like really disgusting, it was like pointing out the, ant the sexism in these great artists. So to me, he's a feminist. Does that Excellent. make sense? Excellent, we love it. Excellent, thank you. Um, great. Okay, well, that's a, uh, that's a good note, I think, to go into the crisp night air and think about uh, Peter Saul as a feminist. Thank you very much, and thank you for my panel. Thank you, David. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. I should have welcomed the two of you back as uh, oh. stalwarts. <laughs>